MSW Media. Thanks to Athletic Greens for supporting the Daily Beans. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, October 17th, 2022. Today, it's been confirmed that Pence Chief of Staff Mark Short was compelled to testify again before the grand jury investigating January 6th. The FBI seeking information from two Trump aides in the documents case. The Arizona Attorney General has referred the 2000 Mules PAC to the FBI and the IRS for criminal investigation. A federal judge bats down John Eastman's motion to get his phone back from federal investigators. The Department of Justice files its full appeal to the 11th Circuit to overturn Judge Cannon's full order for a special master. The judge in the Durham case against Danchenko dismisses one of the five counts during trial. And a whistleblower has been cooperating in the federal investigation into Truth Social. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. Lots of news from the weekend. I'm solo today. Dana will be back tomorrow. She loves you. We have a very big show. Uh, Lots has happened since the last time we spoke. First of all, I'll be speaking with the author of the new book, How We Win the Civil War. That's Steve Phillips. That's later in the show. And then I'll follow it up with the good news. But I wanted to open real quick before we get to Hot Notes with a story about how a co-founder of Trump's media company that covers Truth Social has, you know, revealed some bitter infighting in the company. And his name is Will Wilkerson. He's a former executive at the Trump startup, Trump Media and Technology Group. He was at Fort Lauderdale, Florida coffee shop with co-founder Andy Latinsky last October when Trump called Latinsky with a question. Would he give up some of his shares to Melania? Trump Media, the owner of the fledgling social network, Truth Social, has just been boosted by a huge merger agreement and a flood of investment that has made the stake worth millions of dollars at the time. Now we know that that's not the case anymore. But at the time of this meeting, when he wanted to give shares to Melania, it had been boosted with some investors. Trump had already been given about 90 percent of the company's shares in exchange for the use of his name and some minor involvement, leaving everyone else to split the remaining 10 percent. Latinsky tried to brush it off, telling Trump the gift would have meant a huge tax bill he couldn't pay. And that's what Wilkerson said in an interview. But Trump didn't care. Do whatever you need to do, he said. Five months later, Latinsky, who first met Trump in 2004 on The Apprentice, was abruptly removed from the company's board. Wilkerson says he believed it was payback for Latinsky's refusal to turn over a small fortune to the former president's wife. Latinsky thought so, too. According to an email Wilkerson and his attorney shared with The Washington Post, and the Securities and Exchange Commission. In that email, Latinsky complained that Trump was retaliating against me by threatening to blow up the company if his demands were not met. And of course, Latinsky did not uh, respond to emails and phone messages for comment. It's unknown whether he still retains his shares. So there's all sorts of just fucked up stuff going on with this. It's under investigation in the Southern District of New York and by the Securities and Exchange Commission and FINRA as well. And that's for the DWAC and SPAC. You know, there's there's rules that go along with investing, you know, uh, in a company with a blank check sort of entity like DWAC. And so they've been under investigation for that. And apparently now 
Trump was trying to give most of the money over to Melania. Not sure if that had something to do with him trying to hide assets, but I'm sure we'll find out more as these criminal federal investigations continue. I, you know, I'll keep you posted. All right. With that aside, because that was an interesting, you know, just one of the multiple investigations that Donald Trump is wrapped up in right now and might drag Melania into. We do have a lot of other news to get to from the weekend. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. We knew last Thursday, because I told you on Friday's beans, that Mark Short had been spotted outside the building where the grand jury investigating January 6th convenes. And I had posited on the beans and on Twitter that that must mean Judge Beryl Howell had cleared the way for Mark Short to answer questions that Trump was trying to block through the courts using executive privilege claims. And now the Washington Post has confirmed that to be the case. They say a former top aide to Pence returned before a grand jury Thursday to testify in the criminal probe of efforts to overturn the 2020 election after federal courts overruled President Donald Trump's objections to the testimony. And that's according to people familiar. In a sealed decision that could clear the way for other top Trump White House officials, like, for example, you remember Hirschman, he said, look, I'm going to go tell him everything if you don't fucking get me a court order saying that, you know, that the executive privilege exists. And they postponed his September 12th testimony. He is now cleared to testify, probably because of this decision. And, you know, as well as Greg Jacob, any other Trump aides who who were being they, they themselves weren't necessarily asserting the privilege. It was Trump who was coming in and saying, don't talk to them because executive privilege. And they're all like, well, you know, waiting for a court order. So this isn't a sealed decision. Chief U.S. District Judge Beryl Howell ruled that the former Pence Chief of Staff Mark Short probably possessed information important to the Justice Department's criminal investigation of the attack on the Capitol that was not available from other sources. Trump appealed under seal, but the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit refused to postpone Short's appearance while the litigation continues. So likely he appealed and asked for a stay of his testimony or of the testimony of Mark Short or anyone else while this was litigated, and they denied the stay. They'll hear the appeal, but in the meantime, these folks have to testify. This signals that attempts by Trump to invoke executive privilege to preserve confidentiality of presidential decision-making processes were not likely to prevail on the merits. Because usually if you want to get a stay, you have to show that you will probably succeed on the merits of the case. And they're like, nah, bro, no stay. We'll hear your arguments in due course, but in the meantime, everybody's got to testify. Now, grand jury matters are typically secret, but the Washington Post has reported that prosecutors are working with grand jurors and looking extensively at the actions of Trump and his advisors in the period between November in the election and January 6th. Short's case came to light on September 22nd after Trump attorneys Evan Corcoran, Parlator, and Rally were spotted at a federal courthouse in Washington when there were no publicly scheduled matters along with a lead January 6th federal prosecutor, our friend Thomas Wyndham. Remember when I said they were spotted out there? I'm like, oh, they're talking about privilege. So thanks to you all for sticking with me on this one. It took a lot. I took a lot of side eye for my confidence that they'd get this testimony and that they were working it out and that it would be pretty quick. It seems like justice has prevailed. Obviously, it's never fast enough, but anyway. And also, the Wall Street Journal on Friday evening published an exclusive report revealing new details about the federal investigation into potential obstruction of justice by the former guy in regard to his attempt to retain documents wrongfully taken, a.k.a. stolen, from the White House. Federal investigators are now focused on two Trump aides, Walt Nada and Will Russell, 
who the Justice Department believes are witnesses to documents being moved at Trump's direction, at his order. And uh, we now know that one of them was actually moving the documents. The Wall Street Journal notes that Russell had not previously been reported on as a potential witness, although he had been subpoenaed by the Department of Justice in connection with the probe into the January 6th attack on the Capitol. So that's a different investigation. The Wall Street Journal adds that neither aide is officially cooperating with the investigation, but both are believed to be key witnesses with firsthand knowledge. The revelation raises the specter of more searches of Trump-owned properties by federal authorities. The FBI seized 11,000 documents, including many marked classified or top secret from Mar-a-Lago on August 8th. And speaking of the 11,000 documents, the Department of Justice has filed its full appeal to the 11th Circuit to overturn Judge Cannon's bullshit order. And one of the new things we learned was that Donald was either lying or mistaken when he said there were 200,000 pages and we need more time to review it, which caused Judge Cannon to extend the deadline for the special master review from November 30th to December 16th. Department of Justice points out in a footnote in their filing, in their appeal to the 11th Circuit, there's actually 13,000 documents, and they total about 22,000 pages. That's about one-tenth of the number of pages Trump asserted there were. I'm hoping Judge Deary comes back to revise Cannon's bullshit deadline, and if the one-tenth of the pages math applies, that means one-tenth of the time, And since December 16th is 60 days away, I would say they only need about six days to complete the review. Though Deary might be waiting to see what the 11th Circuit does with the appeal before he makes any moves that could piss off Cannon because she's reserved the right to fire him. Previously, the 11th Circuit approved the Department of Justice's motion for an expedited timeline in this case. So Donald's reply is due November 10th, with the Department of Justice reply to his reply due November 17th. They get the last word. The circuit court had also agreed to hear arguments on the appeal as requested by the Department of Justice and appear to be amenable to expediting the hearing as well. Trump wanted it in January of next year. We will know soon how this all plays out, but with the same jurisdictional arguments Department of Justice made with regard to the classified documents now being made for the unclassified documents, the law is clear. Jurisdiction is jurisdiction, regardless of whether the documents are classified or the evidence is classified. And I believe the 11th Circuit will find in favor of the Department of Justice. And I think they'll do so quickly, as will the Supreme Court if Donald chooses to ask them for emergency relief again. And remember, he you know, would have to ask for an emergency stay from, from the Supreme Court, because if the 11th Circuit rules, that the 11,000 documents, the rest of the non-classified stuff can be used in the criminal investigation, the DOJ just picks that up and starts doing it, just like they did with the classified documents. The Supreme Court would actually have to step in and vacate the 11th Circuit in order to stop the Department of Justice from using those non-classified documents in their criminal probe. They did not with the classified documents. I don't think they will in this case either. All right, now back to the federal investigation into January 6th. A federal judge on Friday denied an effort by John Eastman, that's the attorney who helped devise Donald Trump's last-ditch effort to subvert the 2020 election using the fraudulent elector scheme and the Pence pressure campaign, the one that Judge Carter determined that, along with Trump, had, more likely than not, violated 18 U.S. Code Section 371, which is conspiracy to defraud the United States, and 18 U.S. Code Section 1512C2, obstructing an official proceeding. Well, this judge said, no, you can't have your phone back from the Justice Department. As a New Mexico-based senior U.S. District Judge Robert Brack 
ruled that Eastman had failed to show the government's seizure of his phone by FBI agents who confronted him outside a restaurant in June had caused, quote, irreparable harm. Brock noted that Eastman had obtained a replacement phone and that his desire to bar the government from combing the contents of his seized phone was not a sufficient reason to get it back from the Justice Department. FBI agents investigating efforts by Trump allies to overturn the election seized Eastman's phone in June as he exited a restaurant in New Mexico where he lives. Eastman, as we know, was a key architect of Donald's plan to appoint those fraudulent electors and pressure Pence to consider them on January 6th when he presided over the certification of the election results by Congress. Interfering with that is obstructing an official proceeding. Multiple people who attacked the Capitol that day have pled guilty to this. This particular loss, coupled with the unfettered testimony from top Pence aides like Mark Short, puts Eastman and Trump right in the sights of the Justice Department. And I'm here for it. And election fraudsters in Arizona and Georgia are feeling the sting as well. Attorney General Mark Burnovich in Arizona, super conservative dickhead, has made a referral, criminal referral to the FBI and the IRS, over 2,000 mules Dinesh D'Souza's True the Vote nonprofit organization for fraudulently raising funds by lying to the public, saying they were undercover FBI agents and had handed substantial geolocation evidence of mules over to the Arizona Attorney General. Quote, True the Vote has raised considerable sums of money alleging they had evidence of widespread voter fraud and their efforts would, you know, the money they raised would go to train the public to protect election integrity at the polls. They indicate they've provided the information to law enforcement agencies. In our case, they have not, after promising to do so. Another law enforcement agency has stated they have not provided them the information, informing them they had given the information to us. Given TTV's status, that's true, the vote status as a nonprofit organization, it would appear further review of its financials may be warranted, unquote. That's Bernovich's office. Dinesh D'Souza's Trump pardon cannot help him here. And this criminal referral echoes the ones made for Trump's PAC and Sidney Powell's PAC, both now under federal criminal investigation for potentially defrauding donors by lying to them, not only about what the money was for, but what they actually spent it on. Now over to Georgia, a pro-Trump operative who was caught on tape participating in Georgia voting systems breaches after the 2020 election has testified before the special grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the outcome in that state. Do you remember that? They were caught on tape? Well, this is Scott Hall, a Georgia bail bondsman and Fulton County Republican poll watcher who was captured on surveillance video the same day the breach happened and acknowledged he gained access to a voting machine. He testified as a witness for over three hours last week in the state-level probe overseen by Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. On January 7th, 2021, the day after the attack on the Capitol, Hall and others connected to Trump lawyer Sidney Powell spent hours inside a restricted area of the Coffee County Elections Office where they set up computers near election equipment and appeared to access voting data. Willis's criminal investigation recently expanded to include the breach of voting systems in the deeply red Coffee County by operatives working for Sidney Powell. Hall did not respond to repeated requests for comment. And now let's go over to Bill Barr's appointed investigator, John Durham, and his total failure of an investigation into the origins of the Russia probe, the oranges. As we know, he got one guilty plea from one FBI agent for altering an email. That FBI agent spent no time in jail. Then he lost in court over his indictment of Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman 
And now he's facing troubles in his final womp womp of an indictment of Danchenko, a source for the Steele dossier. This is all he's come up with in like four years. A federal judge on Friday threw out one of the five charges against Danchenko, who's a private researcher, who's, who was a primary source for the dossier. Now, he, th- he just threw out one of these charges. The remaining charges will be submitted to the jury next week. That's according to U.S. District Judge Anthony Trenga and his ruling. Special Counsel John Durham rested his case against Danchenko on Friday afternoon after presenting testimony and evidence for four days to a federal grand jury in Alexandria, Virginia. He argued that Danchenko misled the FBI when he was interviewed in 2017 about the origins of the information he passed on to Christopher Steele. The charge that was dismissed had to do with longtime Washington Public Relations executive, a Democratic supporter named Charles Dolan. Durham alleged Danchenko concealed an email from Dolan that was the source for some information that wound up in the Steele dossier. The defense argued that the FBI agent who asked Danchenko in 2017 about his contacts with Dolan, had used the word talked in his question. Had you talked with him? Danchenko's denial that he had talked with Dolan was literally true because the word talk does not encompass email communications. And that's Trenga's ruling, citing the dictionary definition. Now, I was 100% certain that Michael Sussman would be acquitted, and he was. I'm about 80% certain Danchenko will be acquitted. There's four charges, four charges left. And they're, I don't know, I, I, I haven't been following the materiality of these, you know, purported false statements as closely as I was in the Sussman trial. But um, I think that the Sussman case was more clear of an acquittal than this one. I'll keep you posted. I'm about 80% sure he'll be acquitted, but we'll see. All right, that's the news from the weekend. Next up, I'll be talking with best-selling author of Brown is the New White about his new book called How to Win the Civil War. His name is Steve Phillips. Amazing guy. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everyone. My nights have been so much better since I got my custom mattress from Helix Sleep. Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. Everyone is unique. And Helix knows that, and everyone sleeps differently. That's why Helix has several different mattress models to choose from, each designed for a specific sleep position and feel preferences. They have models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, and models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. And if your spine needs some extra TLC, they've got you. Every Helix mattress has a hybrid design, combining individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top. It's the perfect combination of comfort and support. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. I was matched with the Helix Midnight because I wanted something medium firm and I sleep on my side. Not only is it the best mattress I've ever slept on, but the setup was fast and easy. Helix mattresses are delivered in a box straight to your door for free. And right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's helix, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash dailybeans. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. I am happy and honored today to be joined by bestselling author, columnist, national political expert. He wrote the book, Brown is the New White, which is a New York Times bestseller, and he regularly contributes to The Nation and The Guardian. Please welcome Steve Phillips. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Steve, I'm so excited to talk to you about your new book. It's due out October 18th. It's called How We Win the Civil War. 
and you cover so much important ground in this book. And I think that the timing of this is, I mean, it's kismet that, you know, I mean, it takes so long to publish a book. But now that we've just had our final January 6th hearing, we've talked recently on this show with authors like Ellie Mistal and Professor Eddie Glaude and talking about, you know, reconstruction, the problems with it, the reconstruction amendments, how they had loopholes that allowed us to backslide into white supremacy and how the Supreme Court has kept that going and how this Supreme Court is closer to the Dred Scott Supreme Court than the loving Supreme Court and how all of that has impacted white extremist violence in this nation, which we saw culminate on January 6th. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted you to write this book? Is it about fighting back against that kind of, I mean, you know, we're that autocratic creep is real. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, no, it, it was um, my first book. Uh, well, both of these were published by the New Press. And so when the, our editors uh, and the publishers approached me about a second book, I was like, well, why don't we look at this? This is in 2020. And so very much in the Trump moment, trying to understand, you know, explain what was going on. So why don't we use the Civil War as a theoretical construct? And then eight months later, people carrying the Confederate flag stormed the United States Capitol trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power. So it was not, and wearing sweatshirts saying MAGA Civil War, January 6, 2021. So it's not so theoretical anymore in that context. And then the more I, so I actually did the research, I really did even, like convince myself and try to lay out in the book how the Confederates have literally never stopped fighting the actual Civil War beginning with the assassination of Lincoln. Everybody knows Lincoln was assassinated, but I didn't even fully appreciate exactly when and exactly why. So two days after the supposed surrender at Appomattox, Lincoln gave a speech where he talked about limited Black suffrage. John Wolfe Booth was there, heard the speech, says to a friend of his, that means N-word citizenship. That's the last speech he'll ever give. And then two days later, went and shot Lincoln in the back of the head. That's not surrendering. And so from that moment, and then the way that the Confederates have continued to hold the line in, and that's why the whole first part of the book is really talking about how there has been what I call Confederate battle plan, where they've consistently rewritten the rules, sanctioned terrorism, played this long game, never giving an inch. And it's gone all the way up through the, the uh, uh, January 6th um, hearings. And so, and then, so they quite, literally have been engaged in this battle of what, in essence, the, uh, the 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 Confederates were fighting for. And as I title in my introduction, I use a phrase from Taylor, the author Taylor Branch, it's a choice between democracy and whiteness, in that there really is that battle run. Is this primarily a white nation, as the Confederates believed and as they fought for, or is this a multiracial democracy? And that struggle continues to play itself out to this day. And I would argue that's the animating force in U.S. politics to this to this day. Yeah, and we just recently learned, I mean, we sort of knew this all along, but now we have confirmation that within the FBI, there are multiple and were multiple agents and people working in the FBI and in law enforcement that day on the insurrection that were sympathetic exactly. to the insurrectionists. And that just tells me this is not an intelligence failure. This was a deliberate choice to turn a blind eye to white supremacy. We have all of these, we made all these changes after 9-11, after brown people attacked our, our country. Right. And we seem to uh, have let those fall by the wayside when it comes to domestic violent extremism in the vein of white supremacy. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on 
that sort of, you know, now that we know this isn't an intelligence failure, it fits in with the entire narrative of the last 240 more, 400 years, right? Going back all the way to 1690 of just how we let this kind of white supremacy slide time after time. Right. And the, that that's the, uh, that's the, this question around is it whiteness or democracy? Because, you know, uh, t- so Taylor Branch was talking to the writer Isabel Wilkerson in the, in the, after the Tree of Life massacre at the Jewish synagogue in 2018, which was a direct response to Trump whipping up hysteria around the so-called Central American caravan. And Brandt says that people are reacting to the changing composition of the country and that they were saying that they wouldn't stand for being a minority in their own country. And the choice is, if you offer them a choice between democracy and whiteness, which would they choose? And that's what we saw on January 6th. We had an election. All 50 governors, Republicans and Democrats, certified the election. And that's what a democracy does. But they rejected that outcome. And the majority of the Republicans rejected that outcome. And it is part of this this long-term piece that you're talking about. And so one of the parts of the Confederate battle plan I talk about is silently sanctioning terrorism. The Ku Klux Klan arose to be able to suppress African-Americans after and during Reconstruction to take back power and reestablish white nationalism and white supremacy across the South, which means within the country. And then that's not so silent. And then presidential debate, Donald Trump says to the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. And stand by they did and came out in force to be part of this whole insurrection to try to overthrow the democratically elected government of the country. So we're very much engaged in this fight, and it's it's uh, that's really what I wanted to try to highlight for people and disabuse them of the notion that we are engaged with people who share the social contract, who are committed to the same constitution. They're perfectly willing to jettison any laws or values or the constitution if it stands in the way of creating the kind of country that they want to see. Yeah, and talking about, again, the title, How We Win, How We Win the Civil War. I mean, there are, you know, first of all, we've got the Department of Justice bringing charges of seditious conspiracy, which is born out of going after the Ku Klux Klan, and now finally bringing those charges, those very, very serious charges against those who conspired to attack the Capitol by force to delay the the execution of the laws under the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act. But, I mean, and we sort of can control that by who we vote for and they appoint an attorney general and and hold people legally accountable. But there's so much more that we can do to fight this civil war. Can you talk a little bit about getting out to vote, getting out correct information and the other things that you cover in the second half of the book? Yeah. And so the the fundamental element of what the Confederates do and the right does and the white nationalists do is they try to suppress democracy both through rewriting the laws and restricting through the laws, but also through the extra-legal domestic terrorism that, uh, that occurs. But they do that because they actually realize they are in the minority. I mean, the original Confederates themselves were in the minority. And that was the, in my first book, I really tried to make the argument to explain to people, because I thought people didn't understand how Obama got elected and reelected, that it was an extension of the civil rights and an extension of the increasing diversity within the country. And so there is, in fact, a new American majority in this country that consists of the overwhelming majority of people of color and a meaningful minority of whites. And together, that's the majority of people. Democrats have won the popular vote in presidential election every single election since 1992, with the sole exception of 2004. 
And so their battle plan is to suppress voting and democracy. And the way that we win is to expand it. And so that's the work that Stacey Abrams has been doing in Georgia over the past decade. When I first met Stacey 10 years ago, she had this amazing you know, PowerPoint and a detailed analysis. She says, we lose by 200,000 votes every year in Georgia. There are a million and a half people of color who are eligible and not voting. I'm going to go register them to vote. And she set about over the course of a decade of doing that work. And that's what flipped Georgia, mm. even without, to the amazement of people in politics, including Joe Biden, right? Title my Georgia chapter, Georgia, that's not one we expected, which is what Biden said on election night, because they had not appreciated the centrality and the potential of investing and organizing, mobilizing, turning out voters of color and changing the composition of the electorate. Mm. And this isn't only about doing the kind of work that Stacey Abrams does, which is overcoming hurdles to voter suppression that are in existence, like uh, allowing people who had previously been convicted of crimes to vote. We now have uh, Joe Biden trying to take cannabis off Schedule One, for example. That was a huge pipeline problem. And, and, and that, in my view, was to strip black people of the vote. But also, you know, we need to work to remove those hurdles in the first place. So it's kind of a two-pronged attack in the battle plan, which is overcome the barriers that we have now, help people over those hurdles, while also simultaneously trying to remove those hurdles by electing more Democrats to, to change these laws, kill the filibuster, pass voting rights, expand the Supreme Court, et cetera. Right. And that's the, in the epilogue book, I talk about a new social contract and how the current social contract we have is a, and I describe as a series of compromises with white supremacists. Yes. And even starting with the uh, Declaration of Independence, right, which initially criticized slavery, but then had to be taken out because the slaveholding states didn't want it to actually be in there. The Voting Rights Act. Why do we have to have, why do we have to have Voting Rights Act, period, when we have a 15th Amendment? But then why do we have to regularly renew it? And that was a result of a compromises. And so uh, there we could actually envision a whole different type of society based upon our values if we weren't so uh, restricted by all these different compromised people who do not subscribe to the same social contract. Peru and other places have mandatory voting. And so we mandate paying taxes. We think that's an important thing to do for our society. So why don't we mandate people actually voting if it's something we actually wanted everybody to actually do. But that's not the dominant value, certainly in terms of the right and the Republicans. And so there are lots of things we can do to, to reimagine and reconceptualize these fundamental principles, universal voter registration, same-day registration, anything we can do to make it easier to vote if, in fact, we want people to vote and if we want the electorate to reflect the population. Yeah. And, and the white supremacists in power would use the Constitution as a sword and a shield. And if you've noticed the Republican messaging for a, for a long time now, and it's getting stronger, is that the Constitution is this sacrosanct, incredible, God-given document, and that we must preserve it when in actuality it's a rag that was meant to be amended and perfected as time went on and, and values changed. And so, you know, they've, they let these very small keyhole bits through, but they, you know, they make sure to keep their boot on the necks of the voters to prevent actual popular people from holding power, getting power and staying in power. And so I think that this idea, I think we need to push back on the idea that the Constitution needs to be preserved as opposed to being amended and fixed, which is, is how it was intended to be. 
Right. No, if you, if by the original constitution, people, African-Americans were three-fifths of the population. The constitution specifically has in it the Fugitive uh, Slave Act, which is in essence that any white person can demand of any person of color what their papers are and are they allowed to be here. That's the original constitution. And so if some of them probably do want to go actually back to that, but it has in fact been amended regularly, but then they try to ignore the amendments they don't like. 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, et cetera. The 13th Amendment outlawing slavery was not ratified in Mississippi until the 1990s. And so it was technically, they were supportive of actual slavery in Mississippi up until the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just keeps going. Well, I want to encourage everyone to pre-order this book. You could, It's available for pre-order now. It's called How We Win the Civil War. It's absolutely outstanding. The author is Steve Phillips. Steve, can you tell everyone where they can find and follow you and get more information on your this book, previous books, and, and, and perhaps future books? So uh, I, I work with an organization I created called Democracy in Color, and, and you can sign up for our newsletter, democracyincolor.com. We do a podcast every other week, uh, Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. We do a weekly newsletter, and that's where we keep everybody up to date on the, on the various work that we're doing. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's so incredibly important. Steve Phillips, everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody. I want to sing the praises of something I use every morning. It was the easiest habit to pick up, and it's made a huge difference in my life. I use it every day. I started taking athletic greens because I wanted better gut health and more energy. And I wanted to get rid of my full medicine cabinet of 20 different supplements. And it was just so expensive and time consuming. With one delicious scoop, of AG1 Athletic Greens, you get 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day right. The special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, focus, aging. It covers everything. Athletic Greens is climate neutral. They are a climate neutral certified company, and we want to thank them for doing that and thank them for their support. Right now, they're offering you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase by going to athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans. I take Athletic Greens first thing every morning. It really jumpstarts my day and helps me stay healthy. Athletic Greens is lifestyle-friendly as well, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. They've got you covered. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Again, it's just one scoop. It's delicious, and it's just a scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you that free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, if you want to go over misheard song lyrics, brand new swears that you've heard, um, whoopee stories. We haven't heard a lot of whoopee stories lately. That's your favorite blankie or animal, the stuffed animal or lovey that you have, you know, that has been in your family forever. I love those. Find the cat. That's a fun game where you take a picture of a scene and I have to find the cat. What the mutt? Where I have to guess what your rescue dog is made of. We have all sorts of games and fun stuff. 
Halloween pet photos, whatever you want to send. You can send it to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Also, I just want to give a quick reminder, everybody check your voter registration and then check your voter registration for five of your friends and family members and everybody get out and vote. First up from Lynn S., pronouns she and her, scrutineers.org offers free nonpartisan election protection training on Zoom. All right, huge fan. Thank you for saving my sanity over the past several years. Lynn, the picture of your rescue cat failed to upload. We would love to see Rosie, so please send us her picture again. So that's Scrutineers, S-C-R-U-T-I-N-E-E-R-S, scrutineers.org, free nonpartisan election protection training. All right, here is a correction. A lot of listeners have sent this in. As you know, Bill Barr resigned a couple of weeks before January 6th. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were talking to acting Attorney General Rosen during the insurrection. Yes, we issued a written correction in the show notes when the episode came out. But by the time you hear this episode, that episode's audio will have been corrected. Thank you very much. Because they, it, it, I got confused because they mentioned Bill Barr. But then they were talking to Rosen and didn't say his name. So yes, that is, that is correct. I caught it as I was listening back later. So sorry about that. Thank you for the correction. Uh, John F. Pronouns they. <laughs> this is John Flansberg from They Might Be Giants, by the way. This pooch named Vienna, she, her, is a theater dog of the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, seen here at They Might Be Giants loadout on Saturday night. The breed, I don't have a clue, but she appears to be 100% rock. As always, love the show. Keep on going. Thank you, John Flansberg. This dog looks like a multi-poo. There's definitely some Shih Tzu, maybe. The the track suit reminds me of... um, Jason Sudeikis' track suit in the Saturday Night Live skit. What's up with that? Oh, yeah. What's up with that? What's up with that? And he comes out and he does the running man in that red track suit. So that's got vibes there. But I absolutely love this dog. It's so, so adorable. She is Vienna. And thank you, everybody right now. They Might Be Giants is on the road, on tour. So you can go to theymightbegiants.com to find out where they're going to play in your city. In case you're wondering why I'm corresponding with They Might Be Giants, they do the theme music. They wrote the theme music for this show. So thank you very much for that. Next up from Cindy, pronouns she and her. I wore my crimes and crimes and crime shirt Friday and then had an unexpected Zoom meeting pop up, decided not to change and not to turn off the webcam. The vice president of my department asked what the numbers on my shirt meant. I explained. Everyone at the meeting giggled. <laughs> for pod pet tax, I've attached a picture of me in my shirt being appreciated by my neighbor's horse, Jake, My four foster kittens, who I'm taking in to get spayed and neutered today, and they'll be posted for adoption later this week. And last but not least, a typical shot of our later afternoon dog walks, which often include one or two of our cats. In this shot are our cat, Fanny, pronounced Fawny, okay, Fawny, just like Fawny Willis, and our two Australian shepherds. The red Merle is Maeve, and the black tri is Danny or Donnie? I think Danny. Keep a good thought for them. Maeve is 13 and a half and moving slower. And my sweet 12-year-old Danny was recently diagnosed with osteosarcoma. Oh, and we don't know how much longer we will have either of them. My husband and I do our best to make sure they're as loved and happy and spoiled and adored as possible. Okay, there's the horse and the crime shirt. That's so cool that everybody got a laugh on your Zoom call. That's a beautiful horse. Hello. And then kittens. Hi, everyone. Oh, my gosh. There's a gray tabby. There's a calico. There's a ginger. And there's a void. You got all of them. 
it's that is that a tuxedo? There might be a little white on the belly. I can't tell. But anyway, absolutely adorable. And that bench is the shit, dude. I love it. Looks like handmade, old school. And then, oh, there's the puppies with the cat. I love how when you take your dog for a walk, the cat will stroll along. That's so great. These Aussies are gorgeous. And we will keep them in our thoughts because they look, they definitely look spoiled and loved, but good vibes coming your way. Next up from Melissa W, pronouns she and her. Dear Beans Queens, I have two pieces of good news. First piece, I'm finally getting my 40th birthday present almost three years after I got it. My parents and I are going to Mexico in early November for 10 days. <laughs> so after going through COVID restrictions and cancer treatments, I'm getting my promised vacation I was supposed to go on in May of 2020. I remember talking about this with you, uh, Melissa, during our patron happy hour, a Zoom call that we just had on Friday. Second piece, Melissa says, saw my plastic surgeon. She gave me the green light for my second surgery to put in my implant on my left breast and a lift on my right breast this coming April. And it's all covered by the medical system. That is outstanding. Attached is a photo of my sister and I on Halloween when we were kids. My mom attached the heart on my sister's witch hat because my mom wanted the neighbors to know that she was a good witch. I think I had a loose tooth. (laughs) Oh my God, this is adorable. (laughs) She's a good witch. Oh, adorable. Amazing. Are you Little Red Riding Hood? That's just so cute. Thank you for that. And congratulations. How wonderful that they're going to take care of that surgery and that you get to go to Mexico. That's you're going to have so much fun. 10 days. That's a, that's a real vacation. I love 10 day vacations. Next up from Matt, pronouns he and him. Good news. Whitley loves you. And then here's a picture of Whitley. Oh, the smiling puppy. Hi, baby. Oh, and I love your floor. Is that scraped acacia? Anyway. Very, very adorable. Thank you very much. Tell Whitley I love I love Whitley as well. Next up, from Diana. I confess to talking for my dog with my husband. Often my dog asks him, don't you just love mom or isn't mom just a goddess? Okay, that's funny. I do, I do that with my pets too. Look at the baby. <laughs> Give a little side eye because of the ears. Absolutely adorable. And dude, excellent haircut. I like how it's kind of like at the little bit shag at the bottom with layers. It's beautiful. All right. Next up from Matt. Love the show. Keep up the great work for the pet tax. I show you one of the countless examples of my coworker, Rocky, slacking off on the job. Rocky is a gray and white kitty. Look at the baby. So adorable. Thank you for sending that in. I love people just drop their pets in. I really appreciate it. And from Beth, finally pronounced she and her new listener and loving it. Thank you, Beth. I missed the hearing when it was live and found it on YouTube via Charlotte, North Carolina news station. They have closed captions. And during a John McEntee clip, his name came out on closed caption as John McEntee. This may have happened before, but I needed to share. Great. So we have John McEntee now. And uh, of course, Patsy Baloney instead of Patsy Baloney and Rhonda Sentence for Ron DeSantis. I love closed caption errors. Please send me yours. Now we, I, I, this is great. John Mac and Cheese. We'll just add it to the list. Thanks, Beth, for that. Everybody, thank you for your submissions. Dana will be back tomorrow. Please send your good news to us at dailybeanspod.com and just click on contact. And everybody, I hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful Monday evening. Until tomorrow, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been A.G., 
and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>